for the Lord this morning. Can you say amen? God is a good God. Everybody feeling all right this morning? You awake? Are you sure? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we come into your presence, as we come into your house, as we approach your word, that you would awaken us. Wake us up. Open our eyes. Open our ears. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thursday night, I preached a message here during our prayer meeting unexpectedly. But it was something that the Lord had been stirring in my heart, and I wanted to share it with the congregation. And I want to follow up on that message this morning. And so I want to encourage each and every one of you who didn't, who weren't here on Thursday night to get the podcast, uh, to download it. We put a link to the message on the Facebook page every week, every time a new message comes up before we leave that night. So before we leave today, today's message, a link to it is going to go on the Living Hope uh, Facebook page. And Thursday night it went up on the Living Hope thir- uh, Facebook page. I preached a message out of Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to summarize what I gave on Thursday night because I'm going to follow up with it this morning and and hopefully take it to another level. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, the scripture says, after eight days, eight days after saying these things, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up to a mountain to pray. He said, come on, guys, we're going up to a mountain. What are we going up to the mountain for? Well, I want to take you guys with me to my prayer meeting. Now, it's a powerful thing when Jesus takes you with him to his prayer meeting. He didn't say, I'm taking you somewhere for you to pray. He said, I'm going to pray and you're going to watch because you need to see what it's like to really have fellowship with God. I'm not taking you to one of these legalistic religious prayer meetings where you just kind of utter some words over and over and over again and think you've done something in the presence of God. I'm going to show you what it's like to really go into the presence of God and to have a real prayer meeting. How many know that when we come together to pray and we're in the midst of 21 days of prayer right now, when we come together to pray, the objective is not to be able to say that we've prayed. The objective is to be able to say that we met with God. The objective is encounter with God. And Jesus says, I'm going to teach you this. I'm going to show you this. And after you see this, your prayer meetings will never be the same again. You won't be able to sit through a religious prayer meeting. You won't clock in and clock out. But you're actually going to learn how to approach the father the way I do. So come on, come on up, come up to the mountain with me. Peter, James and John, they go up to the mountain with Jesus. And Jesus says, this looks like a good enough place. Yeah, this is. This is the place where I tend to like to come to talk to the father after a long day of ministry. I like to come up to the mountain by myself and just talk to the father. And and so uh, you guys just just you just hang out. Watch. I'm going to talk to the father now. And then Jesus begins to talk to the father. And the scripture says, as he prayed, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes began to glisten. They said his clothing became brighter than a flash of lightning. Now, have you ever seen a flash of lightning in the distance? You ever stood next to one? The disciples were standing next to a flash of lightning and the brilliance of it was not dissipating. The man was brilliant. He was radiant. His whole appearance changed. The glory of God began to overshadow him and he began to radiate with the glory and presence and power of God. 
And then it says two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in radiant splendor and began to speak with him. Moses and Elijah showed up at his prayer meeting. So he's praying to the father and all of a sudden he's talking to Moses and Elijah. Now, we talked about this on Thursday night, how if you're a Jewish boy growing up in a Jewish home, if there are two historical figures that you would want to speak to, you say, if you could choose any two people in history that you could sit down and talk to, who would they be? Moses and Elijah. That would be the immediate response. Moses and why? Because Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. So if you could talk to Moses, he could explain to you the whole law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you could talk to Elijah, he could explain to you all of the prophets. The entire Old Testament at that time, the entire Bible, all of the scriptures were wrapped up in Moses and Elijah. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is being glorified, Moses and Elijah appear there with him. Meaning that the law and the prophets are only seen properly in the light of Jesus Christ. And they're talking to Jesus about his, the NKJV says about his decease. The NIV says about his departure. And I think the NIV is the better translation. They're talking to him about his departure from this earth, about his return to heaven, about his ascension into heaven, about the fact that he's getting ready to go back to the Father and he's getting ready to return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. They were talking to him about the glory. Remember when you used to sit at the Father's right hand? Remember when the angels, the cherubim and the seraphim used to fall down before you and bring you glory? Well, you're about to go back to all of that. But not only that, the glory is going to be even more intense in your return than it was before. Before you came to earth. And by the way, not only are the angels going to be falling down and worshiping you, but the whole host of the redeemed men from every tongue, tribe and nation, they're going to begin to sing the song of the lamb. They're going to begin to sing worthy is the lamb that was slain. The law and the prophets speak of the glory and power of Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And the whole point of this revelation is that in the light of Jesus, you look back on the old Testament and you see the glory of Jesus there. But there was a problem because it says, but Peter and his companions were heavy with sleep. There, now, that is not the prayer meeting to be sleeping through. Matter of fact, there are two places in the book of Luke that tells us that the disciples of Jesus got real sleepy. And both times it was at a prayer meeting. Both times. Real sleepy. As soon as it's time to pray. And this first one doesn't make any sense because if Moses, I mean, if you could pick your two most famous historical figures, if they were to show up in your room, I don't care if it's three o'clock in the morning, you'd be wide awake. Why is it that Peter, James and John are sound asleep and Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus and he's being glorified before them? They're so sleepy, they don't even see it. The second place is in Luke twenty two forty five. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in the deepest place of agony in his entire life. He's facing the cross. He knows that it's coming to an end. And he takes Peter, James, and John. He says, I need the three of you to get my back in the spirit. So he takes them to a place in the garden and says, I need you guys to kneel down and intercede and pray right here. I'm going to go a little further by myself and talk to the Father. So Jesus goes out a little further, and he's before the Lord. And it, the agony is so intense that his... his his sweat is like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And after about an hour, he comes back to check on his disciples. He knows, man, these are my three road dogs. You know, th this is my inner circle right here. 
These are my boys. You know, if I can't count on anybody, I can count on these three. I know they're probably crying out to the father on my behalf. They're probably slapping the stone and stomping their feet going, oh, Lord, help, help our Lord, help our master, help Jesus, help him, Lord, help him. Oh, God, be with them, God. I don't know what's going on. We, hey, Jesus, I just know that they're, that they're just wailing before they're crying out to God right now. And he gets over there and he's like, and, and they're asleep. They're all piled up on top of each other, snoring and whistling. And Luke twenty two forty five says they were exhausted with sorrow. The NIV says they were sleeping with sleeping from sorrow. And he explains it in the next verse. In verse 46, he says the spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. There's the problem. The flesh is weak. Why do we fall asleep in the presence of God? And we've all experienced it. Come on now. You open your Bible at nine o'clock at night. You know, open that Bible. I'm going to spend some time with God and the Lord. uh, 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 uh. It's been a long day. I think the Lord is just taking me into his rest. Hmm. Hallelujah. I'm just going to rest in the Lord. I'm going to soak in his presence. It's funny, every time I go to pray, the Lord just takes me right into his rest. But you could turn on Netflix and watch movies till three o'clock in the morning like this. One more episode. Then I'll go to sleep. (laughs) I know it's 2 a.m., but one more episode. One chapter of the Bible, you're snoring halfway through that chapter. It's funny, when it comes to spending time with God, all of a sudden, physical tiredness, am I the only one that this happens to? Physical tiredness just over, and what happens is we give an excuse, we say, well, the flesh is weak. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And we take when Jesus said that to his disciples in in verse 46, the flesh is weak. We use that. We say, well, you know, even Jesus said the flesh is weak. You know, Jesus said it to his disciples. I'm just like one of his disciples. The Lord knows my heart. See, look, God knows my heart. He knows my spirit is willing, but my flesh is just weak. See, my flesh is weak. But why are you still in the flesh? The disciples of Jesus Christ did not have the indwelling of the spirit yet. When he said that, he said, well, you know, I know you're experiencing this now, but in about 13 days, your reality is going to shift because I'm going to be on the, in the grave for three. I'm going to come out, walk with you for 10 or no, I'm sorry, 40 days and then 10 days. So, so in about 53 days, your whole reality is going to shift because what happened? The infilling of the Holy Spirit came. And when the infilling of the Holy Spirit came, the weakness of the flesh was overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. What happens is your physical nature does not know what to do with the glory of the Lord. Your flesh is weak. It means, and it's a good thing. Well, my flesh is weak. Good. That means you're not restricted by it. How can you be bound by it? It's so weak. You can just step over that weak flesh and get into the spirit. But what happens is that. When the glory of the Lord comes, your physical nature doesn't know what to do with it. And so your physical nature just starts to shut down. What is this? Glory? Don't know what that means. Don't know what that is. Don't know what to do with it. I think I'll go to sleep. That's what Peter, James, and John did. They're on the mountain. Jesus is radiating in his glory. And they went, oh, snap. Don't know what to do with this. 
There's a natural man on the inside of you that begins to back up, back up. As soon as you come into the presence of the God, of, of the Lord, your natural man starts to back out of here. Well, what, I don't know what's going on up in here. That's why when it gets too hot in the presence of God, you know, there's some people that want to get up out of there. It's like, man, the presence of God is too hot in there. I got to go outside. You know, whoo, something's going on up in there. But other people go, I want to get up in it. And, and you know, when the presence of God really comes heavy, you want to do both at the same time. I remember I was crying out to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. I was a college student. I was crying out, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory for hours every day. Show me your glory. Show, please show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And I remember I started to approach the glory of the Lord in prayer. And as I began to approach the glory of the Lord in prayer, I started to get terrified. It's like, oh, snap. He's about to really show me his glory. Show me your glory. Wait a minute. Do I really want that? Show me your glory. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's getting, oh, you know, when you start to really approach the glory of the Lord, that fear of the natural man. Why? First Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. Your natural being, when it begins to, to perceive and confront heavenly realities, your natural man goes, I don't speak that language. I don't know what's, I don't know what that, I, I, I. No, 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 no. And so the question is, are we going to allow ourselves to be confined to the natural man? Or are we going to step over the natural man and step into the spirit and be able to say, as Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God. And so the scripture says when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, meaning Jesus had to wake them up before they could see the revelation that was already happening in their presence. Oftentimes you're crying out to God for him to do something or show you something that he's already done. You're just asleep. And you wonder why he doesn't answer those kinds of prayers. Because he will not do again that which he has already called done. So when Elisha is, is in the city and he's on the mountain and a servant standing next to him and the Syrian army surrounds the city, his servant freaks out and says, my master, what are we going to do? He said, chill out. What do you mean chill out? He says, don't be afraid. Don't you see this army? He says, yes, but I see another army too. And there's more with us than there is with them. He says, what are you talking about? The prophet says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. He didn't pray, oh, Lord, help us. The help was already there. He just couldn't see it. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. Wake him up to the glory that is already present. I'm telling you, the glory of the Lord is already present. You just can't see it because you're asleep. And when the eyes of the servant of the prophet were open, he saw chariots of fire all over the mountain. And all of a sudden, his tune changed. Shall we kill him? <laughs> he went from, oh, Lord, the enemy's going to kill us, to shall we kill him? <laughs> Wake up. Now, that's Thursday's message. You got to get it. You need it. I'm telling you, download it. Listen to it. Here's the point of today's message. When you wake up, waking up is one thing. Staying awake is something else. You got to stay awake. You know, it's easy. You know, most of we all have these waking experiences where God shows us something, where God reveals something to us, where God takes us to another place, where God opens our eyes. Maybe you have this waking moment of encouragement where God breaks down the power of discouragement in your life and shows you that he's with you and all of the things that you've asked him for are there and that he's broken through in your life. And he's he's straight. And you have this moment of encouragement. Hallelujah. And then two days later, you go back to sleep and you're back in that pit of discouragement and despair. I remember we used to have this early morning prayer meeting in our apartment when my wife and I lived over on 65th and Hollis. 
And we used to have this early morning prayer meeting from 5.30 to 7.30 a.m. every morning. We did it for two and a half years, seven days a week. And, and uh, uh, first morning we did it, it was actually the first 21 days of prayer that we ever did. 21 mornings. And we started the first morning with 18 people. I was so excited. And we ended with three. And two of them was my wife and myself. And the third one was Kevin Carrington. But he was there every morning, 5.30 a.m. And Dele would come out. Some of you remember Dele. Dele would come in with his baby, and his baby was like six months old. And she would be so mad that he had her up at 5.30 in the morning. She would come in like this. Just mean mugging everybody. Looking all gangster. And I remember in one of those prayer meetings, I was really struggling. I was crying out to God. One of my buddies was visiting from out of town, and he was there. And all of a sudden, I opened my eyes, and there was an angel of the Lord standing at the corner of my coffee table in my living room. Brilliant. Brilliant. After the prayer meeting was over, my buddy said, did you see that angel? I said, you saw it too? He said, yeah. He said, where was it? I said, it was right there. He goes, yes, that's exactly where it was. I said, what it looked like. He told me what it looked like. I said, that's exactly what it looked like. We saw the same angel at the same place at the same time. Man, I was so pumped. There was an angel of the Lord that appeared in my living room during our prayer meeting, right? So I was all excited. I'm all encouraged. And then two days later, I was talking to him on the phone. He said, how are you doing? I said, man, I'm so discouraged. I am just so discouraged. He said, what are you discouraged about? I said, man, I push stuff and it doesn't move. And, I, you know, I try to do stuff and it doesn't happen. And, you know, it's like pastor in a church is like trying to herd cats. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like nothing moves. It's just, you know, everybody's going everywhere and I can't get it together. And nothing just seems to be working. And he said, well, um, you know, Benjamin, I'm no Bible scholar. But it just seems to me that uh, when an angel shows up, something significant is happening. He said, I mean, when you read the Bible, angels don't just show up to kick it. <laughs> you know, I mean, when an angel appears in your living room, something is going on. How can you be discouraged on Thursday when Tuesday morning at about 630 a.m. an angel appeared in your living room and you saw it with your own eyes? I was like, that's right, huh? Encouraged on Tuesday, but discouraged on Thursday. Anybody ever been there? And it's so hard to stay in the revelation. You got to make a decision when God gives you a revelation and when he wakes you up to something, when he, when he shows you something, and when he takes you somewhere, the fight is not to wake up. The fight is to stay awake. Because every power in hell is there to try to lull you back into sleep, to lull you back into despair, to lull you back into discouragement. And one of the greatest uh, uh, manifestations and, and examples of this in Scripture is Palm Sunday. You know, Matthew 21. Jesus says to his disciples, I love the story. He says, you're going to go up to this guy's house and just when you find his donkey, untie it and bring it to me. They, whoa, wait, 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 wait. You want us to steal this guy's donkey? Say, so, yeah, just take it. You don't want us to knock on the door and ask for it? He goes, no, 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 no. Just untie it and bring it to me. He said, look, you can get shot for trying to take somebody's donkey up in here. He says, if anybody asks, just say the Lord has need of it, and they'll let you go. <laughs> right? You know, taking somebody's donkey is like taking somebody's car. You know what I'm talking about? You know? Imagine if I just told Joseph, I want you to go up the street. There's a particular house, real nice Chrysler 300. And I want you to, and his keys are in it. I want you to just get in and drive it here. And and if he says anything to you, just say, the Lord has need of it. And he'll let you go. So you're thinking, okay, Lord, if I don't get shot, or if the cops aren't, don't follow me up in here, I'm cool. they go, sure enough, the guy, hey, 
That's my, what you doing with my donkey? The Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go. I can't believe it. It worked. The Lord ever given you an instruction and you were just shocked when it worked? Like, are you kidding? That worked? He bought that? I got to try that more often. Don't try it more often. The Lord tells you to do something once, you know, to quit while you're ahead. And so, right, so they come back with the donkey and he gets on the donkey and says, what are we doing? He says, let's walk. They're on the Mount of Olives and they start walking down the hill into Jerusalem. What the disciples didn't know was that down in Jerusalem, they were in the middle of the feast. It was the feast of Passover and there were thousands of people there from out of town. Well, just a few days prior to this, Jesus had gone to this city called Bethany where his friend Lazarus had died. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. And a whole bunch of people that witnessed it with their eyes went into Jerusalem and started spreading the word far and wide. Dude, this guy raised the dead before my very eyes. No, I'm serious, man. I was there when the homie died, okay? They put him in the grave. I saw them, them embalm his body, wrap him in grave clothes, and lay him in the tomb. They put the stone over it, and four days later, this, this dude, Jesus, the Wodi, shows up four days later, right? And he says, take me to where they laid him. They're like, okay. Oh, maybe he just wants to cry at the tomb, right? And he does cry at the tomb, right? So we're thinking he's mourning, right? And then he goes, take away the stone. And I was like, man, this homie was crazy. We're like, don't you know how stank it is up in there? He's been in there for four days. Rigor mortis is set in. The worms are eating his body. Flies are flying. out. I mean, it's not good. He, he insisted, take away the stone. Man, we rolled that stone away and the putrid odor came out of that tomb and filled the atmosphere. It filled the atmosphere so thick that none of us could breathe. But he looked right into that stink and spoke right to that death and said, Lazarus, come forth. And all of a sudden, the stink went back into the tomb and disappeared. And all of a sudden, we heard something going on in there. And this man came hopping out of that tomb. I'm telling you, he's the real deal. I mean, they were spreading the word all through Jerusalem and everybody was excited. And then all of a sudden, all of these tens of thousands of people are talking about the Lazarus and they look up and they see Jesus on a donkey coming down the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And they go, this is it. They remembered Zechariah chapter nine, verse six. It says, Rejoice greatly, O virgin daughter of Zion, for behold, your king is coming gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When a, team came, when a king came to be your city, he only came in one of two ways. If he came riding on a white horse, I mean, if you looked up on the Mount of Olives and saw somebody riding on a white horse, dude, you closed the gates to your city, you called out the archers, you armed yourself. Why? A white horse means war. He's coming to make war on your city and put it and kill everybody. If a king comes riding on a donkey, it means he's coming to make peace. They look up and they see Jesus on a donkey. They said, this is it. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. And they got palm branches. The palm branch is a symbol of victory. He is victorious. He is the victorious king. And then they started waving palm branches and they laid their cloaks on the road. And they started screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, which in Aramaic means save, save now. They recognized their need to be saved. And they recognized his power to save them. Save, save now, save now. And then they started screaming, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were singing praises so much so that the Pharisees called it blasphemy. 
And four days later, the same crowd was screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Same people. Four days ago, they got the revelation that he was the Messiah. And four days later, they were screaming, crucify him. Four days ago, they were all excited about Jesus. And four days later, the whole crowd had become antichrists. They had this waking moment. And within four days, they had gone back to sleep. This waking moment in which they stood in the revelation and they got this powerful revelation of who Jesus was. But within four days, they were sound asleep again in the sleep of apathy and in the sleep of despair. And here is the here's the rub. When God makes a promise, there is always an interim period between promise and fulfillment in that interim period between promise and fulfillment. The opposite of God's promise happens. If God promises you money, get ready because you're about to be broke for a while. If God promises he's going to give you a spouse, get ready to be single for a while. If he promises you a new car, shine up that nice bicycle. You're going to be riding it for a while. He almost never fulfills his promises immediately. And I'll tell you why there's the interim period. And in the interim period, it's not just the absence of the promise. It's the opposite of it. Abraham, you are the father of many nations. 20 years, no kids, not one. Joseph, everybody's going to bow down to you. Beaten by brothers, sold into slavery, thrown into prison. Hmm? (laughs) Let me tell you what the interim period is designed to do. It's designed to bring your agenda to the surface. Because what we don't realize is that we often and always, without knowing it, we mix our agenda with God's promise. And we see God's promise, we interpret God's promise, instinctively we interpret God's promise as the fulfillment of our agenda. And we enter into the realm of presumption. Let me tell you what presumption is. Presumption is the premature, self-willed, and arbitrary arbitrary expectation of the fulfillment of what we desire from God. Say it again. Presumption is the premature, self-willed, and arbitrary expectation of the fulfillment of what we desire from God. It's premature, meaning I expect it now. It's self-willed, meaning I want it to look the way I want it to look. And it's arbitrary, meaning, and I'm going to find a reason to make it seem like God should have done it the way I wanted to do it. And God always causes this interim period in which he gives us a chance to recognize our agenda and die to it. And if we don't die to our agenda during the interim, we die, period. We either die to the promise or we die to our agenda. We have a choice. Either your agenda is going to die and the promise is going to be fulfilled or the promise is going to die while you try to fulfill your agenda. How about John the Baptist? John the Baptist gets this powerful revelation. Remember, he said in John's gospel, said, I would not have recognized him except that he who called me to baptize told me the one upon whom you see the spirit descend. He's the one. God had given John this revelation. You're going to see the spirit descend in the form of a dove on a man. And that man is the Messiah. John was the kind of preacher that you didn't want to have come to your church more than once because he only had one sermon. Just one sermon. Right. You didn't want to. You didn't invite him to preach a revival at your church. Right. One sermon. You ever known anybody to have one sermon? My grandmother had three. That's how I learned to preach. 
watching my grandmother. She had three sermons. I knew all three of them. John the Baptist, he would get up to preach and he'd say, there's one coming after me who is greater than I. I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Repent. Now get in this waters of baptism, boy. Repent. And he started baptizing folks. Repent. Right? Then the next day he'd come out. There's one coming after me who is greater than I. Right? I mean, he preached the same sermon every day. He's getting people ready. His whole ministry was to get people ready. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, John's disciples start following Jesus. And some other disciples of John come to him and say, uh, you know, John, some of your disciples are following Jesus. What should we do? John said, you should follow him too. I'm just the best man. He is the bridegroom. It's his wedding, not mine. And the best man, he gets excited when the bridegroom comes. I must decrease. He must increase. It ain't about me. It's about him. So go follow him. John gave up all his disciples, right? 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 Look at Matthew chapter 9. This trips me out. John said, I'm going to give up all my disciples, but I better hold on to just a few of them. Just in case, just in case this don't turn out the way I think it should turn out. Look at Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Why does John still have disciples nine chapters into Matthew? And his disciples are questioning Jesus for not being Pharisaical enough. Didn't the Pharisees hate John? Because he preached Jesus. And now John is just like the Pharisees and his disciples are offended that Jesus disciples. Why does he still have disciples? It gets worse. Look at Matthew 11. Now watch this. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, it says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, He sent two of his disciples and said, are you the one or do we look for another? (laughs) Here's the the thing that blows me away. After he heard of the works of Jesus, he heard what Jesus was doing. And he was disillusioned when he heard what Jesus was doing. And what was Jesus doing? Healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers. Casting out the demons, forgiving sins, setting people free. When he heard about the miracles of Jesus, he got disillusioned. Does that make any sense to you? Let me tell you why he was disillusioned. Because he was interpreting what Jesus was doing in light of what he was not doing. I know he's healing the sick out there, but what is he doing for me? I'm still in prison. He ain't getting me out. So he raised that kid from the dead. That's good for that family, but he ain't doing nothing for me. That John the Baptist spirit comes on believers when you're jealous of what God does in somebody else's life instead of rejoicing with them. Somebody I heard somebody say one time, you know, they were, we were in a we were in a meeting and, and somebody was testifying. They said, man, I needed three hundred dollars to pay my rent. And a check came in the mail the night before for three hundred dollars. Praise God. And the person next to her said, praise God, praise God. I'm broken in debt and Jesus is working financial miracles for you. Bless the Lord. He ain't did nothing for me. (laughs) 
That was from Kenya. <laughs> said, that's why he ain't doing nothing for you. <laughs> John hears about the miracles of Jesus and all he could see is what Jesus is not doing. And he's in prison and he says, go ask that ninja what he is doing. Go ask him, what are you doing? What are you? You're running around having healing meetings while your boy is in prison. You're not going to get your boy out of prison. Get me out of here. Presumption always interprets what God is doing in the light of what he's not doing. Faith always interprets what God is not doing in the light of what he's doing. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16, they had just been beaten. With a, and you didn't want to get beat by the Romans. It wasn't like a butt whipping with the belt that your daddy did when you were a little kid. That's nothing like that. How about a cat of nine tails? And then they were put in Roman stocks in a little hole in the wall prison that was dug under the ground. Rats running around. The smell of human feces and waste everywhere. It was a terrible place to be. And they're hanging there and it says at midnight, Paul says, Silas. And Silas goes, what's up, Paul? He says, I don't know about you, but I feel a hallelujah coming on right now. He says, what are you talking about? He says, man, I think we need to have a worship service. He said, let's sing. Let's sing, Silas. Now, why were they singing and worshiping when they just got beat and thrown in prison? You know why? They were rejoicing in what God did. Watch this. Paul, we just got finished preaching in Philippi, and people were healed and delivered and set free. The gospel was preached to the poor. The lame walked. The blind saw. The deaf heard. The poor had the gospel. I'm talking, Silas, people are going to go and spend eternity with God in heaven because of what we did today. Because we were obedient to God, eternal destinies are set in order. I'm telling you, Silas, that people's lives are changed forever. Forget the fact that we're in prison and God didn't get us out. Forget the fact that he let us get beat. Who cares about that? We're going to focus on what God did, not on what he didn't do. So many believers are disillusioned by what God didn't do. Because of it, they completely missed what he did. Paul and Silas begin to sing. And here's the beautiful thing. Because they focus on what God was doing and begin to give him glory for it. And it's ne it never says, and they were praying, oh, Lord, get us out of this prison. They were worshiping him. They were rejoicing in the Lord. They were saying, God, thank you for what you did today. Thank you for saving people. Thank you for healing people. Thank you for setting people free. Thank you, Lord. Who cares that I didn't get an honorarium? <laughs> I'm never going back to that church. <laughs> Come on, somebody. As they worshiped and prayed, God sent a violent earthquake and opened not only their bonds, but set the whole prison free. Do you know that when you begin to rejoice in the midst of your trial, when you begin to focus on what God is doing, even in the face of what he's not doing, it brings freedom not only to your own situation, but sets everybody free around you. Paul said, I don't know about you, Silas, but I'm not going to let my pain lull me into the sleep of despair and disillusionment. I am in pain right now. 
doesn't mean that, you know, the, the whips just kind of bounced off of their backs. No, man, they were beaten. They were broken. They were hurting. They were in physical pain, but they were not subject to the limitations of the flesh. The flesh is weak. And if I'm in physical pain, my flesh begins to pull me down, pull me out of the spirit if I allow it to. But Paul said, I'm not going to allow the pain and the physical limitations of my flesh to pull me out of the spirit. Instead, I'm going to recognize and I'm going to live out what I said in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm telling you that when God wakes you up, you got to fight to stay awake. And you got to make a decision that I'm not going to sleep through this one. I am not going to sleepwalk my way through life. And I'm not going to live in the sleep of disillusionment and despair. I'm not going to live in the sleep of discouragement anymore and ignore everything that God's doing around me. God might work ten miracles on my way home, but I never saw it because I was asleep. I could be standing right there on the mountain next to him and he's being glorified before me, but I'm going to sleep. And I'm telling you something. You've got to understand. And here's the thing. This is how you kill and put to death your agenda. You put to death your agenda by recognizing that faith does not mean believing God for a specific answer to your prayer. Faith is like sowing a seed. And Paul said in first Corinthians chapter 15, there in the middle somewhere, he said, when you sow a seed, if you're not sowing the body that will be, you're simply sowing the seed, but God gives it a body as he sees fit. When you are praying and believing you're sowing the seed of faith, don't try to give it a body. God will answer it as he sees fit in his time and in his, his, his way. And it's going to take the form that he wants it to take. That means I can keep believing. Even if God says you're the father of many nations and I don't have kids for 20 years, I'll still keep believing. Even if God says everybody's going to bow down to you and I get thrown in prison and then I get I become a slave. I'm, I'm just going to keep believing why God's going to give it a body. God's going to give it a body. But what happens is despair begins to creep in. And when despair creeps in, I start saying, forget it. Forget it. I'm out of here. Forget it. Forget it. And we look faithful when we're praying. Oh, God, give me a wife. Translation. You got about six months to do it. And then I start fornicating. <laughs> oh, God, would you change my wife and do it within the next two weeks or else I'm about to start looking around for others. I got the I got the papers in my drawer there. All I got to do is sign them. But God, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to keep these disciples of my own over here. But I'm going to give you a chance. But I just want you to know, Lord, that if you don't do it in my time, I got my disciples over here. Save now. But do it in the next four days or else we're putting you on the cross. And do it the way we want you to do it. We want a kingdom and we want that kingdom to look the way we want it to, to look. And we want you to be the Messiah, yes, but we want you to be the kind of Messiah that we want you to be. We want a political, military hero. And instead, Jesus says, you want me to save now? And they say, yeah. He says, good. He goes into the temple. He fashions a whip and starts beating the money changers. He goes in and messes up their entire economic system and says, I'm saving you. Because <laughs> when God starts messing with my money, he's got to go. 
<laughs> Save now, but you got four days. Do it in my time frame, do it in my way, and make it look the way I want it to look. And the disciples had no idea that they fell into the same trap. Because the moment G- the moment the soldiers showed up in the garden to take Jesus away, all of them scattered. <laughs> and Peter, that little punk, well, he did try. He tried to be a gangster. See, Peter should have known. See, like, I know I'm not a gangster, okay? I don't try to be. I never claimed to be a gangster. I am from East Oakland, but I'm, I'm not of it. <laughs> I grew up in it, but not of it. I don't have a gangster bone in my body. I will talk my way out of a fight in a second. I will share Jesus with you. <laughs> Tell him, come here, give me a hug. We ain't got to do this. Already too much black on black violence out there in the street. Peter tried to be gangster. He draws his sword. He looks at all these soldiers. He's all, heck no. He looks and sees his slave. Shop! Cuts off his ear. Unarmed slave of the high priest. He didn't attack the soldiers. He'd look for an unarmed slave. Oh, there's a slave. Look, he's carrying the bag. Shot! <laughs> Got him, Lord! <laughs> Did Peter put that thing away before you hurt yourself? And he picks up the ear and heals the guy. Puts it back. Peter's like, man, I'm trying to do something for the Lord. So I don't need you to do that. Peter said, Lord, you don't need me. Fine, I'm going fishing. When you found me, I was a fisherman. And obviously you didn't turn out to be the one I thought you were. So I'm going back. Going back to my old way of life. Going back to my own way of doing things. I'm going back to what I used to do. I'm going back to where I was before I began to hope. Because, see, the, the one protection mechanism, you've got to understand that unbelief is a protection mechanism. It protects the heart against disappointment. Because I can't allow myself to be disappointed again. And so to protect myself from disappointment, I'm just going to embrace unbelief. Because I think you're going to disappoint me again. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to go fishing. And Lord, if you want me, come get me. Abraham, Lord, give me a son. Just make sure to do it in the next couple years because Hagar is looking really good. (laughs) At the moment that Jesus died on the cross, there was only one disciple left. The rest of these guys walked with him for three years. Check that out. One out of 12 was left. And one of the others was the one that betrayed him and put him there. They all had agendas. Even Judas had an agenda. Remember when he betrayed Jesus, he said, I tried to make him rich, but he wouldn't listen to me. (laughs) Remember, even after the resurrection, the disciples still hadn't surrendered their agenda. The moment right there in Acts chapter one, the moment before he ascends into heaven before their eyes. He says, go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the father. And they said, and then are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Then are you going to do it? Surely now you're going to do it, right? You're going to do it now. You're going to do it the way we want you to do it now. We've waited long enough. And he said, that's none of your business. 
It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set in, your, in his own power. It's not for you to know how the Father is going to fulfill the promise or in the time frame. The time frame of the fulfillment of the promise is not your business. So, well, what is our business? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. What do you mean my witnesses? Means that I'm not going to change your mess just yet, but I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness in the midst of your mess. And when people see you, they're not going to see messlessness, but they're going to see an anointed man of God or woman of God in the midst of mess. And people are going to look at your mess and say, you're blessed in the midst of your mess. I need to get blessed in the midst of my mess. If I could handle mess the way you handle mess, I would be just as blessed as you're blessed. The problem with the world is not that believers have mess. The problem is that when we have mess, we go to the flesh. Instead of staying in the spirit and allowing God to anoint you to worship in the midst of your mess. Yes, my financial situation's in shambles, but I'm worshiping God in the midst of my mess. Yes, I don't know what to do with my kids, but I'm worshiping God in the midst of it. I haven't stopped believing. I haven't stopped hoping. I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. I don't care what it looks like. The prophet Habakkuk said, even when there are no sheep in the pen and there's no cattle in the stalls and there's no fruit on the tree, you look in my life and I don't, you don't see any fruit. Nothing seems, oh, well, you're a believer and nothing's going right for you. That's right, but I give God the praise anyway. He said, yet will I rejoice in God, my Savior. I don't need fruit. I simply am sowing seeds and believing God to give it a body. I hear believers say all the time, it's a terrible witness. My finances are in shambles. What kind of a witness am I? Listen, the quality of your finances does not make you a witness. It's the quality of your heart that makes you a witness. What makes you a witness is can you rise up in the anointing of the Holy Spirit and begin to declare that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I don't care if it takes a hundred years. I will trust in him. He woke me up to his promise. I'm not going back to sleep. Psalm 119 verse 148 says, my eyes stay awake throughout the watches of the night that I may meditate on all your promises. The psalmist said, I know I got to sleep, but I can't sleep to the promises. I can't fall asleep to the promises. I can't forget your promises. Psalm 17, 15, the Lord gave it to me so strongly the day before yesterday. Psalm chapter 17, verse 15, it says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. Say that as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. Begin to declare it as for me, I will see your face in righteousness as for me. Come on, say it as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. Say it. I shall be satisfied when I awake to your likeness. I shall be satisfied. When I awake to your likeness, take that off the screen. It's the wrong translation. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake to your likeness. When I awake to your likeness. When I awake to your likeness. In Zechariah chapter 4 verse 1, the prophet said, As I stood and spoke with the angel, he awakened me as one is awakened from sleep. You see that? He said, I'm talking to the angel. And all of a sudden he said, wake up! And I woke. Didn't know I was asleep. You know, God can wake you up even when you're already awake. Do you know there's different levels of sleep? 
You might be awake to one promise, but you're asleep to another. And God can come and wake you up to the next promise. You might be awake to that promise, but you're asleep to another. And God comes and wakes you up to that promise. Listen, you've got to learn how to get awake and how to stay awake. And the prayer is not, God, come change this and come change that and come do this and come do that. That's not the prayer. The prayer is, God, wake me up to what you've already done. And wake me up to what you're already doing. And wake me up. Wake me up. Wake me up before you go, go. I'm not planning on flying solo. Come on, somebody. Wake me up, Lord. I don't want to be asleep to what you're doing. So often we are awake to what God's not doing and asleep to what he's doing. We're conscious of where he's not, but completely unconscious of where he is. God wants to flip the script on that whole thing so that all we're aware of is where he is and what he's doing and what he wants and what he's promised and what he said. I'm not listening to what the devil says anymore. I'm not listening even to what I want anymore. It's about the crucifixion of your agenda. That's all. That's all God's waiting for is for you to put your agenda on the cross and nail it there and leave it there. That's all he's doing. That's all he was doing with his disciples is fishing out their agenda and killing it, putting it to death. Want to know how to put the flesh to death? Kill your agenda. God, I live for you. Living for your agenda is a results oriented spirituality. I pray to get a result. And when I don't get a result, I quit praying. And so many believers are disillusioned with prayer. I used to pray a lot, but I don't pray anymore. Why? Because I prayed and nothing happened. And that's why nothing happened. Because God knew that you would stop praying when nothing happened. And God was fishing out your agenda, but now he's going to kill it and take you back into the prayer closet. Not for a result, but for fellowship with God. I pray not to get something from God, but to fellowship with him. God wants me to pray because he wants to be with me. Listen, I'm telling you that the answer to your every request is the presence of God. The presence of God is the answer. It's not even your finances getting fixed. It's the presence of God. Because I tell you something, you can be broke as a joke and God comes in your room and you begin to see his glory and his presence comes and you feel rich. I'm telling you, and you can have all the money in the world and feel so far from God that you want to take your own life. Rich people commit suicide all the time. It's time to wake up, church. And it's time to stay awake. Make the decision. I'm going to stay awake. I'm not going to sleepwalk my way through life anymore. I'm going to stay awake. Bow your heads. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, it's time. Wake us up. Wake us up right now. Let there be an awakening in this house. In awakening, in awakening, in awakening. We've been asleep for too long. Asleep to your promises, but awake to our problems. Asleep to your provision, but awake to our lack. Asleep to your love, but awake to our rejection. We're so conscious of what we don't have. But the scripture says that you've given us your spirit that we might know the things that we have been freely given by God. There's so much that we have been freely given, but we're asleep to it and we don't see it. But God, wake us up to the promises. Wake us up to the provision. Wake us up to the presence. God wants you to be awake to his promises, awake to his provision and awake to his presence. His promises, provision and presence never leave you. If you don't see him, you're asleep. If you think he stopped providing, you're asleep. If you think he stopped promising, you're asleep. If you think he stopped being present, you're asleep. It's time to wake up. Make a decision. I'm not going to sleepwalk my way through life anymore. God, wake me up. The prophet Isaiah said, Surely the Lord has given me the tongue of a learned, 
that I might speak a word in due season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning, awakens my ear to listen as one being instructed. Lord, it's time that I begin to trust that you're going to awaken me morning by morning. You're going to awaken me. You're going to awaken me. You're going to rouse me. The angel of the Lord awakened me as one is awakened from sleep. But he awakened me as I spoke to him, Zechariah said. As I spoke to him, he woke me up. Listen, as you begin to talk to the Lord, the Lord will wake you up mid-sentence. You say, well, I'm asleep. Good. Just start talking to the Lord. In the midst of your sleep, ask him to wake you up. Begin to speak to him every day. Go into your prayer closet every day. I tell you what, when I pray, I don't stop praying until I wake up. When I become aware of the glory of God, when I become aware of the presence of God, when I begin to see his face in righteousness, that's when I know that my prayer time has, has hit its mark. I'm not done till I begin to wake up. I'm telling you, it's time to wake up. God is taking you there right now. God is taking you there right now, but you got to make a decision. Psalm 17, 15, I want you all to memorize it and get it in your spirit. I want you to meditate on it and begin to declare it. Claim it for yourself. As for me, I, sh- I will see your face in righteousness. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake to your likeness. I'm telling you that now we are the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. We will awake to his likeness. But we need to make a decision each and every day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come into my life. Come and wake me up. Wake me up out of the slumber of disillusionment and despair and discouragement. Discouragement is one of the most wicked devils in hell. If he can't get you to lust, he'll try to discourage you. Those are the two primary attacks of the devil, lust and discouragement. If he can't get you to lust, he'll try to discourage you. There's only one way to avert both attacks of the enemy. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake because if I'm not awake to the presence and promises of God, all of a sudden, and listen, this is the thing. When you are awake and conscious of the presence and power of God, you're completely unaware of the attacks of the devil. So many believers are so conscious of Satan. Oh, the devil's attacking me today. Oh, the devil's attacking me today. Oh, the devil's attacking me. He's coming against me with this and coming. And you're so conscious of what the devil is doing. Listen, stop fighting the devil and just wake up to the presence of God. Because when you're conscious of God, you're completely unaware. Oh, the devil tried to kill me. I didn't even know. I was just busy worshiping the Lord. I don't have time to fight with the devil. I'm going to fellowship with my God. But you can't do both. You can't fight the devil and fellowship with God at the same time. God is saying, stop fighting the devil and start fellowshipping with God. It's time. Father, I just speak your blessing over this house this morning. In the name of Jesus. And I declare that an awakening is happening. Awake. Awaken my soul. Awaken my soul.